Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Biblical Frame, where we are evaluating current events from a biblical theological perspective. This is our fourth podcast, and today we're going to be looking at the theme, the topic of truth. We're living in a world right now where it is becoming increasingly difficult to know what sources of authority, or those that claim authority, are actually dispensing and giving us the truth. When we listen to the media, is it clear that what we're hearing is true? When we read newspapers or various journal articles, do we know that what we're hearing is true? So we'd like to evaluate today how, as Christians, do we assess claims of truth? Do we look at them? And uh, I'm here today with Ivan De Silva, who's a professor an instructor at Trinity Western University, and Doug Allen, an economist at Simon Fraser University. And our distinguished guest today is a former professor of mine and also Ivan's Bruce Waltke, Old Testament professor and all-around polymath. We're delighted to have you here with us today, Bruce. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much for coming. Good to be here. So I think a good way to begin is, Ivan, you've kind of thought about this topic a little bit, uh, along with Bruce and invite you to ask some questions, and we can go from there. Yes, thank you very much, Ed, and uh, what a delight it is to have uh, Bruce Walker here with us. And um, Bruce, we know that you are uh, a person of Scripture. You have studied it pretty much all of your life, and um, truth is also a hugely important uh, element for you. The... um, I understand that in order to know the truth, one must be a person of the truth, dedicated to honesty and righteousness. And um, no matter where the truth leads you, you have to be ready to follow before God will reveal that to you. He will not reveal truth to those who uh, are insincere. So would you please tell us... um, uh, maybe just comment on that, that in order to be uh, to know the truth, you have to be a person of the truth. Yeah. I don't think I'll be much use to you all politically. I'm not that informed. But I might be profitable in how to discern truth in Scripture. Because ultimately, Scripture is going to be our authority. And we have to be able to interpret Scripture um, well. Part of our problem is that the church is often divided about what Scripture says. And, of course, I can't give in these few minutes the whole course on hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. When I came back to Regent, well, when I was at Regent, the only required course was hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. I thought it could be profitable to think about spiritual qualities that tie in with what you're saying, a person of truth, spiritual qualities uh, that we must bring to Scripture so that we hear it accurately. And being an Old Testament guy, I love stories. And I love to learn theology through stories. Mm. There are three stories in the Bible that are really strange. Mm. 
And all three of these stories, God seems to change his mind. The problem is that the people were the ones who weren't hearing right. And why weren't they hearing right? The first story is of uh, Balaam and his uh, donkey. Numbers 22 through 24. This is the time when Israel is uh, migrating through, had come out of the wilderness. They've come through Edom. And now they come to Moab, which is from where they will cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. This is the end of their wanderings. The king of Moab does not welcome them, even though they're simply asking to pass through. And the king of Moab wants to curse them. It was a famous prophet at that time. In fact, we know he existed also from archaeological evidence. 500 years later, he's mentioned as an outstanding seer who was able to, he's a clairvoyant, even though he's a pagan, but he has a gift like some people have who are not Christians. They still have prophetic gift. So Balak, who's king of Moab, sends his messengers to Balaam, offering him sums of money and things that would entice Balaam to come, to come and curse Israel. So Balaam goes to the God of Israel, the Lord, and he asks, should I go and curse Israel? And God says, no. So Balaam says back, sends back the messengers that he's unwilling to come. But Balak is unwilling to accept his refusal and sends the messengers back, this time giving him a large sum of money a position in the court, so it's, I'm going to give you stars, and I'm going to give you money, and I'm going to give you happiness, everything the world wants. And Balaam has a gift, but he's a pagan at heart. And he doesn't, he wants to go. So he goes back to God. Should I go? And God says, yes. But when he goes, God almost kills him along the way, but he's going to fulfill his purpose to curse, to bless Israel instead of cursing it. The point of the story is that God was clear in his word, but Balaam didn't like what it said. And so God deludes him. He's still under wrath. I believe there's a great danger that we don't want to hear what Scripture says, and we keep going back and we will hear what we want to hear. I think it's a psychological insight into our depravity Mm. and why we misinterpret Scripture. That's the first story. Mm -hmm. The second story is found in uh, 1 Kings uh, 13. Again, it deals with all these three stories, deal with a prophet. In this case, there's a young prophet of Judah And uh, Jeroboam has become king of the northern kingdom, a very uh, 
contrary to Israelite religion. And God sends this young prophet of Judah up to prophesy against Jeroboam. And God says to him, don't eat and don't drink. Come, deliver your message and come right back. So the young prophet goes up to, uh, I think, the Shechem area and delivers his message. And there's some sons of an old prophet who heard him speak, and they were very impressed with this young prophet. So they go home and tell their father about this young prophet. I guess what a great preacher he was. And the old prophet says to the sons, go after him and turn, bring him back and tell him to have a dinner with me. I want to meet him and so forth. So the sons go, they find the young prophet, and they tell him, the old prophet said, to come eat and drink. He goes back, and he is killed by a lion for disobeying God. The point of the story is, you are responsible, not somebody else. You have to be authentic and not say, well, so-and-so says this, which is what was going on there. The old prophet says this. So the old prophet, he must be right. Many times people in the congregation are right and the pastor is wrong. You have to be true to yourself, a person of truth. So that's the second story. The third story is uh, Micaiah ben Imlah. And this is a time of Ahaz and Jeho- uh, Jehoshaphat. Ahaz is king of the... Is it Ahab? No, Ahab is king of the northern kingdom. And Jehoshaphat is king of the southern kingdom. And they meet in the gate, I think, of Samaria. And they're deba- debating whether or not to go to war against uh, Ammon, of course, the Jordan. Now, you never go to war in the ancient Near East without a prophetic authentication, then you have the gods behind you. So Ahab says, let's, uh, so Ahab says, let's get the prophets here and see what they say. So he has the prophets come, and they do a, a war hoop and a dance and hype up, and you're going to have a great victory. And Jehoshaphat is discerning that these are not true prophets, a real prophet of the Lord. So he says to uh, Ahab, um, don't you have a prophet of the Lord here? And uh, the uh, king of the Israel says, yeah, but he never tells me what I want to hear. So Jehoshaphat says, that's the guy we want to hear. So they go and get Micaiah, who is the prophet of the Lord. Mm. So the kings ask him, should we go to war or not? And he joins the war party. The whole who go to war is going to be a great victory. And Ahab says to him, Micaiah, how often do I have to tell you to tell me the truth? Oh, you want the truth. I saw all Israel slain like sheep 
on the mm. battlefield. And Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you? He never tells us what, never tells me what I want to hear. So again, you don't hear it right. And God will delude you. If you don't come with an honest heart and you're not a person of truth, you're not going to hear truth. And God will delude you. So this ties in with your summary statement of being a person of truth, that when you hear God's word, do it. And don't listen to somebody else if God really is clear to you. You are responsible before God for yourself. And be sure you're open to hear whatever it says, even though you don't like it. So that I thought those stories might be helpful um, yeah, spiritually. What strikes me about those stories, I think about them in the context of what we've gone through, is how maybe we're all guilty of this, of uh, only wanting to hear what we want to hear. There are so many, you know, what we call echo chambers now, yeah. where you, you go to your blog sites that you like, you listen to the media that you like. There's been all kinds of coordination anyway. Uh, there are AI systems that feed us with things that we like, and we have to be very diligent even to find out what the other voices are, let alone the voice of God, but just voices that might disagree with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So one of the things I hear you saying there with the Balaam story is that in our depravity, if we don't like what God says and we pester him to say something else, he might just give us what we ask for. I'm convinced that's what happened. I'm convinced that to take just same-sex marriage, there are people who say the Bible doesn't forbid it. I don't see how you can read the Bible and draw to that conclusion. But I'm convinced they, they actually hear it that way. And you will hear it the way you want if you don't come with an honest heart to really do the truth. Whoever is willing to do the truth will know the truth, says Jesus. John. Yes. And it's leaving the church in a place where we are ideologically divided and at war with one another. And uh, some of us have experienced that very personally, where fellow brothers and sisters in Christ have heard something through great effort in Scripture that others do not believe Scripture supports. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very painful in the church when we're disagreeing in these ways because some of us believe that God has been clear and that the requirement upon us is obedience, even if it means suffering. And others believe that to be truly progressive, the church must affirm things that Scripture clearly denies. Doesn't it come, uh, another thought that you, what you just said, I mean, uh, how you understand Scripture depends on a lot of the assumptions that you start with. And if you start with an assumption that, you know, well, Paul was really a Roman apologist— and we can't really trust his letters, uh, you know, way ago, right? I mean, it's quite easy to get rid of the uh, issues of same-sex uh, attraction if you, if you do that. And again, in the context of what's going on today, I had a student in my office this last week, and uh, we got talking about some COVID issues, and she sort of, not knowing knowingly, I think, pulls the Nietzsche line that, you know, well, there's no such thing as facts anyway. You keep throwing these things at me, but there's, there's no such thing as facts. So, you know, where do we go from there? I mean, if, if, if it's all just opinions, and all just a matter of... Uh, you Did know, she subs- take that as a fact? Yeah, exactly. I, I, well, you know, because there's no facts, we also kind of reject logic and coherence as well. So that, I don't think that would go very far with her, but 
but it's sort of the, the exact same point, right? And what, what assumptions are you starting from? Are you starting from the assumption there's no such thing as truth? There's no such thing as uh, these sorts of things? You get a, quite a ways away. Tragedy in these stories is that it results in death for not willing to hear it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's a very serious business. Yeah. A little bit on the side, uh, a woman friend in Dallas wrote me last week in which uh, Jesus, after the Pharisees had accused him of being under the power of Beelzebel, and Jesus says, you will give an account for every idle word. Mm. And then he says, you will be judged by your words. You will be either declared righteous or condemned by your speech. Mm. And she wanted to know, can we really be judged righteous by our speech? And it really hit me, what Jesus is really saying, if you really spoke absolute truth, it would be the same as living a perfect life like Jesus did. It really shows the importance of words that it is eternal life or eternal death. Of course, that drives us to the Christ, but it hadn't hit me until I answered her letter because I was trying to make this point that he's saying in the day of judgment it's going to be according to absolute righteousness and your words will be sufficient to justify you or condemn you. And we usually think of deeds in Romans 2, and we understand that, but I don't think we take words that seriously. So that when we're talking and uh, propaganda, it's a very serious business. Yes. And as I work through the Psalms, I'm amazed at how much it has to say about speech. And as you're saying, truth is in short supply. <clears throat> and so you do. I mean, I... I I can't trust CNN, and I don't trust Fox News. No. They're, they're both sides of it. I, when I hear it, I could hear the slander going on, and we're not to slander. So anyway, well, stop. I, I just want to pick up on that point, um, that your words, you will be found righteous. It seems to me that when there's a gap between what one says and what one does, that it reveals a fundamental disintegration of the self which is a consequence of the fall. So that in order to be a perfect person, there needs to be an integration between what one says, which creates a reality in the world, and then how one lives, which also creates a reality in the world. And it's obviously highly significant in this regard that Christ is called the Word who became flesh. He lived an entirely consistent life as the Son of God, as one who reflected the character and the being of God in the terrestrial sphere. I guess very, very good. Thank you. I I think that's, that was probably your meaning, right? That the word has to be matched by the action. That's why it's true, right? If the word didn't match the action, it's, wouldn't be true. Yeah. If you say yeah. to your brother, "Oh yeah, you're starving. Oh, good for you. Have a good day." Let your uh, yes be yes, yeah, and your, your yes no be, be no. no. We know it's throughout the. Yeah. What I, I hadn't seen before, though, put deeds aside. On the judgment day, what you say will be sufficient to either. But what you're saying is presumably not a lie, right? What you're saying is sufficient. Well, if you'll be judged 
by your words, and he doesn't, I assume he means by that, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth, right. yeah. Right. yeah. Mm. There is a, a proverb, uh, it's an anonymous, I think, Spanish proverb that says, words are the skin of the soul. And it took me a while to figure out what that meant. <clears throat> and um, I think what it meant, uh, when I finally thought about it, I think what it meant was, uh, your skin is your biggest organ in your body. It's a what? It's your biggest organ in your body, mm -hmm. the, um, the, the human skin. And when you have issues going on inside you, one of the first places that what's wrong with you inside manifests itself is on your skin. So, for example, if you have an infection or something raging inside you, your skin is going to get red and, and hot. If you have some other allergic reaction going on inside you, you're going to get a rash. Your skin is going to reveal the inner condition of your body. And I think that connects to what Jesus was saying. It finally helped me put it together because your words reveal who you are inside and uh, what kind of a person you are inside and whether you are messed up inside or whether you are whole and integrated. And of course, Proverbs talks about this. The, the word, your words are connected to your heart mm. and out of your heart, uh, your mouth speaks and therefore, and therefore um, you'll be able to tell. And so... A truthful heart will reflect itself in truthful words, whereas a deceptive heart or a wicked heart will manifest itself um, in the opposite way. But I wanted to also connect with um, what you were talking about, uh, connecting your word and words and deeds, because the Hebrew word for truth is uh, emet, and that's really the idea there is of reliableness or faithfulness, right? In the in the sense of your words and your deeds are connected, mm. whereas the um, the, the alethos, the um, the um, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word is more of does does um, does what you say connect to connect to reality and so forth. I don't think they are too distant, but that's an interesting thing to talk about as well. But <clears throat> getting back to being a person of. Uh, in order to know the truth, you must be a person of truth. Perhaps we can just discuss, so how do you, how do you become that? How do you uh, become a person of truth so that you are not deceived by uh, the, the, the voices out there and you yourself then speak the truth? Well, of course, there are the means of grace that God uses to develop those characteristics within us. And the fundamental means is Scripture itself, this purging, purifying, edifying, so that um, it's the old analogy, without food you starve, and we're depraved, and without spiritual food, we will stray. Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from words of knowledge. So you have to constantly be listening to God's Word with an open heart. And that's fundamental to me. And also, prayer and time in prayer, I think, is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good. Uh, in my own, I begin, uh, in the liturgy, you begin with, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Hmm. 
And that's how I begin every day. Mm-hmm. And always, and I sort of pray that almost as soon as I confess my sin, I have to confess the confession. <laughs> you know, like Martin Luther there. He's just, uh, just avoiding work. <laughs> well, Bruce, I was also... The other thing is, yeah. uh, 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 one more that's important, is just what we're doing here, community. Mm. We need one another to encourage one another and correct one another. And the biggest regret I have looking back on life, I think the failure of the church, is I don't think I was rebuked enough, be honest. Not that I want to. Maybe they knew I'd get mad. I don't, I don't think that would happen, but people don't want to. It's interesting to me that the law, Leviticus 18.18, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 18.17 is rebuke your neighbor yes. or you will be like him. And so, it's very interesting that rebuking is not in contrast to love, but of course it has to be done properly and uh, in a spirit of meekness and knowing yourself. Now, you don't see the, the beam in the other guy's eye and miss the splinter in your own. Yeah. One of the things that we are seeing in the church, to go back to our discussion about um, same-sex marriage in the church and so forth, is that there has been a lack of desire and an unwillingness to exercise the third mark of the true church. We don't see discipline for behavior and or doctrine in life. And I think it's going to spell um, bad things for the church because you will not you will not have uh, the unity, the confessional unity that I think we need in order to move forward on this one. So, just picking up on what you said there, Ed, um, <clears throat> I think I mean just this last week. Well, I guess this week because it's not over yet. We've had a, a U.S. Supreme Court nominee who was asked, what is the definition of a woman? And um, uh, could not define what a woman was. I mean, that is the level of untruth that we are dealing with here in society. And what is clear here is your ideology, um, if, if you are an ideologically di- driven person, you are not going to be a person of the truth. Mm-hmm. And you are not going to be able to know the truth or speak the truth. And I'm wondering if that is a huge part of the problem in this whole, including the COVID narrative and the pandemic narrative that we've been fed, is it comes with an ideology that a lot of people have bought. And uh, as a result of buying into that, uh, truth has been sacrificed and we're not able to evaluate the facts and um, see them. Um, You know, Paul Paul commended the Bereans for being um, uh, exemplary because they checked out what he said. I mean, we're talking about the apostles' words. Um, And this goes into what you're saying. They have to do it for themselves and not just listen to an authority. You have to know uh, God's word for yourself. And that is what they did. But here we have, I think, in uh, in this situation, we have given over the task of our examining the information ourselves over to these outside sources. We proxied them, you know, whether it's the government or whether it's uh, other leaders or whatever. And we have failed to examine the issues for ourselves. It takes work. Uh, it's hard. It takes dedication. You, you have to um, study and, uh, and be willing to pursue the truth. And maybe we're just lazy and 
We don't want that, and we're, we, we, will, we will rather listen to somebody feed us, spoon feed us. It, it is alarming the degree to which the truth can be skirted in society at large right now. There was an article written by somebody in the UK with reference to our prime minister, because he had visited the UK, and they asked him a series of questions. And then they wrote an article about how our prime minister, Trudeau, does not answer the question that he has been asked, but rather has talking points that he continually returns to and cycles through. If one has watched him in Parliament too, it's distressing the degree to which he can avoid answering a question with any degree of honesty. And it sounds like one is in the midst of pure propaganda. I want to read a couple of quotes from Jacques Ellul's book called Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes. Jacques Ellul was an incredible thinker and a fellow Christian of ours as well. And I want to read these in order to tee Doug Allen up too. Doug produced a video some time ago on, um, I think it was entitled Ordinary Facts. COVID Facts. COVID Facts for Ordinary People. (laughs) Yeah, Ordinary ordinary Folks. Ordinary ordinary People or Ordinary Folks. (laughs) (laughs) Which was very, very well done. And uh, he's going to share a little bit of that with us today. But I wanted to read, this is an incredible book, if you guys haven't read it, Propaganda by Jacques Ellul. And I think it's a book for our day. To the extent that propaganda is based on current news, it cannot permit time for thought or reflection. A man caught up in the news must remain on the surface of the event. He is carried along in the current and can at no time take a respite to judge and appreciate. He can never stop to reflect. And what I've witnessed is people are watching CNN or Fox around the clock and the formation of their attitudes is equivalent to the formation happening from CNN or Fox oftentimes. You know, one of the interesting things about that is that how many things we knew but ignored because we're caught up in the in the news. So even if we go back to March 2020, uh, there are so many things that even the average person would have been aware of, um, you know, anybody who lived a little bit of life. But the, being caught up in the news moment by moment, mm. we ignored them. You know, one of those is the idea that you know, we 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 delved into this uh, policy of track and trace. That when track, trace, and quarantine, but everyone knew. Certainly, everybody in public health and most people would know that once a virus enters into a community, that's impossible to do anymore. You have a very short window, and uh, you know, even by April and May of 2020, we knew that the virus had been circulating at least by December 2019. Turns out it was probably circulating in September of 2019. So public health people knew that. Most people probably knew that. And yet, when you're in the moment, day by day, listening to the case counts, and you're doing this track tracing, nobody bothered to stop and say, wait a minute, you know, what are we doing? And one of the crazy things about that policy was is that we had rapid tests very early on, and they could have done something very well, but if we if the government allowed us to use rapid testing, they would not have been able to do the track and tracing mm-hmm. because you're doing these tests in your private home. So not only were we caught up in, in the moment that made us forget about what we knew, but it led to a tragedy in that uh, we, we didn't use the rapid test. Can I, can I pick up on that one theme of forgetting? Sure. Because I was reviewing Alil's book earlier this morning. He says, the modern man does not think about current problems, he feels them. 
He reacts, but he does not understand them any more than he takes responsibility for them. He is even less capable of spotting any inconsistency between two successive facts. Man's capacity to forget is unlimited. This is one of the most important and useful points for the propagandist, who can always be sure that a particular propaganda theme, statement, or event will be forgotten within a few weeks. Moreover, there is a spontaneous defense reaction in the individual against an excess of excess of information, and to the extent that he clings unconsciously to the unity of his own person against inconsistencies. The best defense here is to forget the preceding event. In so doing, man denies his own continuity to the same extent that he lives on the surface of events and makes today's events his life by obliterating yesterday's news, he refuses to see the contradictions in his own life and condemns himself to a life of successive moments, discontinuous and fragmented. So, so think of two things that we forgot immediately. One, that there's such a thing called natural immunity. Yeah. And we didn't even allow natural immunity to count we, we, we discriminated against people, said you can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to a movie theater because you haven't been vaccinated, even though we can document that you had a test, that you'd been positively tested. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, no, 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 the, what are you talking about natural immunity? We've never heard of that before. That was one. And then the other one, how many people who grew up with the idea that you know, there's no quote-unquote cure for the common cold? Well, we've known that always for 100 years, at least uh, in, in the science community. Why? <clears throat> Because coronaviruses and rhinoviruses and all these other viruses that we live with constantly mutate. And now, of course, we all know that. Um, And they coexist with animals. Mm. And so we know there's never going to be a one-shot vaccine, never could be. And there could never be a zero COVID. And yet we collectively forgot that. Right, collectively forgot that, sort of, you know, allowing for, you know, to become, uh, to have all the consequences that came out of that. Let me tee you up with another quote from Alon. A second qualification obviously concerns the presentation of facts. When these are used by propaganda, one is asked to swallow the bald fact as accurate. Also, most of the time, the fact is presented in such a fashion that the listener or reader cannot really understand it or draw any conclusions from it. For example, a figure may be given without reference to anything. Without a correlation or a percentage or a ratio, one states that production has risen by 30% without indicating the base year. Or that the standard of living has risen by 15% without indicating how it is calculated. Or that such and such a movement has grown by so many people without giving figures for previous years. The lack of coherence and cohesion of such data is entirely deliberate. Yeah, I, I could go a long time on this one. Um, and here I think, though, we as the audience have to take some responsibility, right? You have to know what a denominator is and a numerator is. But just to give you a couple, two examples I could give you, I thought um, one is the difference between levels and rates. And if you were to listen to Dr. Fauci or, or Dr. Bonnie Henry or whatever, they often will mix those two things up in an answer. They're not, they're not saying anything wrong. But they're, if you don't know the difference between a rate and a level, you're going to be misled. So, you know, we often measure the lethalness of a virus in terms of the rate, you know, of the people who got infected, how many died. But it's much more dramatic to say 
to mention a level, there's been almost a million Americans killed yes. by COVID. Okay, that's very dramatic. But you know, what if there are 300 million people infected? Uh, that's so, that's the rate. Could you say something uh, for our listeners about comparatives? Do we have some statistics on how we can kind of put this within perspective? The whole COVID. Um, I didn't hear the question. Uh, I'm asking Doug Allen if he could just give us some comparatives. So statistically, COVID has taken however many lives. What does this stack up against? Because most of us, when we do hear a number like that, it's overwhelming. But how do we how do we think about it? What are some of the measures of comparison that would be helpful? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one of the things again that we learned early on in the in COVID that we completely ignored was the fact that it has what's called a steep age gradient, which that's a complicated way of saying that we're not all at the same risk. Oh yes. You know, if you're over 70, you're at a much higher risk than if you're under 70. And uh, so when you ask the question, you know, could put it into context, uh, uh, you know, it sort of depends on what age you are. So one way to do is say, of all the people, of all the people, let's just say, what would be the lethalness uh, on average? And in the first two waves, that was around 0.15 of a percent. So that would be the infection fatality rate. So uh, if somebody was infected, they had a 99.85 chance of survival. That's for everybody. Okay. Uh, you know, if you are under 20, it's, it's about as close to zero as you can possibly imagine. Um, so, you know, it really depends on, on, uh, on, on, on the age. If you look at Omicron, Omicron is about one third as lethal on average, uh, which is about, and it's about one half as lethal as an average flu year, if, you want to, if that makes any sense. That's, is, is there um, merit in the thought that when it begins, they really don't have rate? They don't have the statistics. So you don't know the total number that were infected? Well, we really don't know. It's, 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 it's kind of new. It's just what we've experienced it that in the beginning, they really didn't have enough experience to have any percentages. But eventually, these I've become aware of rates and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the first mm-hmm. rates estimates were uh, out of Stanford, and they were in the, there about one point. How, but when did those rates uh, yeah, first Yeah, around appear? May of 2020. So that's... Uh, so it's still uh, very early. Yeah, but it still, but it still took... A while. Yeah, it took because I think it really begins like November of... 2019. Right. So here's another example of, of not putting statistics into context. So in the very first week of, uh, of, of March, there's a, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal from the Stanford epidemiologist who points out the fact everybody's jumping to the conclusion that this thing has this incredibly high fatality rate, mm-hmm. but we don't know the number of people that are infected Ah, right. Right. So, so you can either you can jump to one side or the other. Right. Of course, uh, it began also uh, that skews the data in uh, well, right in Kirkland, right by us, in the first um, um, an old age home, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's more than assisted living nursing home. Yep. And that's where, and I know that because my colleague on um, CBT responsible for the NIV. His father uh, lived in Kirkland, and he went uh, something. I think he broke his leg. His father was ninety, and they put him into a nursing home. Mm-hmm. 
and he died from COVID in the nursing home. And a lot of those early deaths were old people because it was in nursing homes. Mm-hmm. And so, but that's where it begins. So I don't think we had, I don't think Fauci had all the data either at that point. Right. But despite not having the data, jumped to a conclusion that the, you know, initially they, you know, they're claiming that, so in those early models, they were claiming that the, the fatality rate was around the neighborhood of 2%. So they're making these assumptions. Yeah. And what they should have done is said, we don't know mm-hmm. in March, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to wait. Or yeah. we need to conduct some kind of mm-hmm. test of, of the population to find out how many are infected. And, and uh, now they did have the, I can't remember the name of the, of the cruise ship. Um, right. Uh, that, you know, they, so here they had a, a population that the, the virus hit. And they knew how many people were infected and how many died. And, of course, they come up with a number that's much less than, than, than 2%. But I mean, this just goes on and on. I mean, it, it, you know, everybody saw these these nonlinear, multicolored curves taking off. Uh, that again, uh, we knew by April uh, that these were false, and uh, you know, they were making predictions in Canada that you know, a quarter million people would be dead by July of 2020. Mm. Well, again, we knew by the end of March that was not going to happen, mm. <laughs> uh, and yet we clung to them. And those graphs are continually used to this day, even. Uh, so what should the public have done in the, in that kind of situation? Should they have dig, dug deeper? And I mean, the average person, or do they just blindly accept these? Right. That's what this student was asking me this this past week. She goes, you know, it's there are no such thing as facts, and uh, so I just it's it's not that hard. You really are literally a Google search away from from things. And for the listeners, uh, there is a site. Uh, put out by John Hopkins. It's called Our World in Data. And when COVID's all over, you can go there to find anything else in data. But it's an interactive site. You can pick your country. You can pick, you know, am I worried about cases or deaths or whatever? And it's you get these graphs and data. So it literally is, it's not hard. You don't have to be a statistician. Uh, right now, at the moment, there's a fascinating graphs you can look at with Hong Kong and New Zealand which shows you that the virus will get you one way or another, right? I mean, New Zealand and Hong Kong basically had no COVID experience because they isolated themselves. But Hong Kong is about to pass Canada in cumulative deaths per million, and that happened in one month. New Zealand passed us in terms of cases per million in one month. And the nice thing about it is, you know, New Zealand is a highly vaccinated country. Hong Kong, among over people, 80, almost very few vaccinated. And you see the effect of vaccines very few deaths per million in, in New Zealand and in Hong Kong. They, like I say, they will pass Canada if they haven't already in deaths per million. From from looking at the statistics, do you think there came a point where it became political and our policies were driven by politics rather I, than I, I by the medical it, facts on the ground? It became political within within three weeks of the lockdown because what happened was it became it it. This is the strange thing. <laughs> Uh, there was so much that we found out so quickly because there was so much research being done and it was publicly available and governments knew within three weeks that they'd made a drastic, drastic mistake. Mm. But then what do you do? Do you admit that you just destroyed trillions of dollars in the economy? Yeah. But what, and what they did was they doubled down. Mm-hmm. And, and once you double down, you must continue to double down until it's over. And here we are two years later and you know we just had the Emergencies Act because in any double down strategy, the stakes get higher and mm. higher and higher, and you absolutely cannot tolerate uh, something that shows you are wrong, right? And uh, and so that's one of the ironies is that 
even though the pandemic in many ways it's moved to an endemic state it's been an endemic state for almost 18 months the reaction of the state is stronger passports stronger masking you know more oppression against opposition etc mm-hmm. and that's the result of of this political equilibrium of doubling down i know one of my worries right away and i think you wrote about this in your paper was the collateral damage. And one of my earliest questions was, what are going to be the collateral impacts of this with people isolating at home? And so on and so forth. And um, you kind of tabulated that this is the worst... uh, Peacetime policy failure in history. Yeah, I think so, in terms of any uh, costs. And okay, we learned by the fall of 2020, we knew that the costs were, were mounting and going to be enormous. By the spring, we knew they were catastrophic. And of 2021. And one thing we learned throughout 2021 is a different, so cost, loss of education, loss of mental health, deaths other than COVID, right. uh, in, at least we know in England, uh, uh, exceeded deaths from COVID. So more people died from lost treatment mm-hmm. than, than from COVID itself. Wow. So we knew all of that, but one of the things that's come out of 2021 in terms of the research side is the massive increase in inequality on many, many dimensions because these costs did not fall equally on everyone. Mm. And it's almost like if you are on any sort of bad demographic side of the fence, if you are, you know, low income, person of color, single mom, uh, you know, blue collar, you bore bore the brunt of this thing. Uh, And uh, there were many winners, but there were far, far more losers. And they were the very people that, you know, uh, we should be more uh, worried about, let alone people around the world. No, I was just going to yeah. say, I, I hadn't verified the source myself, but I had heard that because of distribution impacts, that people were put into starvation. There will be massive starvation that results of this and all the consequences. I mean, it's literally set us back 20 or 30 years in terms of worldwide income uh, uh, equality. So what do then we as the church who are supposed to be the pillar and supporter of truth and um, the ones who are supposed to be uh, people of truth and so forth, do we, once we know this, do we just go along then with uh, the government and uh, these uh, along or do we, do we have a responsibility to stand against it and uh, bring the truth to people, including the government, to speak truth even to the government? Or do we just... Um, surrender and throw our hands up and say, well, you know, Romans 13 says we must uh, obey the government and submit and then just uh, go along. I, I don't see why we have to uh, violate scripture to speak the truth. That, I, that, you know, if I were to take the trucker pro- protest, if I was advising them, I would have said, what you should do is you should uh, go across the country. You would have all these people cheering you as you passed over through every overpass. Arrive in Ottawa, say your piece over two or three days, and then go back on the road. And they could have zigzagged across the country and they could have had, a, they could have had 20 million people on their side in a matter mm. of two weeks. Instead of then going and breaking the law, you know, setting up a camp, etc., losing the support they had, mm. I think that was a big strategic mistake. Mm. I, think, I think you can have your cake and eat it here too. That mm. you can declare the truth, you can do it in a way that doesn't harm others, uh, you know, it doesn't break the law, and... Uh, yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, Bruce, You, I remember talking to you a while ago, and you had some reflections on Daniel with reference. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on Ivan's question. Yeah. Where do you draw a line? 
And um, I use the illustration of uh, Daniel's three friends. And they, um, this is the famous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, they are Israelite, pious Israelites, Jews, in Babylon. And they were captive precisely because they were gifted mentally. Very, very bright young men. And so Nebuchadnezzar wants to use them for his own purposes and take advantage of the spoils of war being brain power in this case. So they have to go to the Babylonian University and they learn, they learn Babylonian religion and they learn Babylonian culture and they did not resist going to the university. They didn't draw a line there, surprising in a way. They were willing to go through the educational system. And they did everything, I forget what the second one was. They, well, they, they, where they drew the line was on diet, where they had to eat food that the Bible clearly forbade. When it was clear to them this, the Bible forbade it, then they drew the line. And of course, then they didn't act politically. They were persecuted and accepted the persecution. And I think that we have to accept that the church doesn't fight carnally. Mm. We can resist, but it's a cross. It's a different kind of resistance. And yet the cross will win. But it's a difficult way. But that's, you have to bruise this, uh, you kill the servant by having your heel wounded in mm. the process. So I think it's instructive that they were willing to go so far on education and uh, everything else that went with it, serving the king, in fact, but they would not violate scripture. And so for me, it has to be clear that it's violating scripture before I'll really draw a line, a hard line. Would it be fair to say that there is a slight, maybe even a sharp contrast between Daniel chapter 1, when they make a request not to eat the king's food. And Daniel chapter 3, yeah. where they draw a sharper line and say, we will not bow yeah. to the image that Nebuchadnezzar yeah. has set up. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That uh, it, it, they, they did handle it tactfully, but they would have been chapter 3 at first 1, had the king insisted. Mm. But the king compromised for the advantage of having their brains. Mm-hmm. So, mm -hmm. Part of the problem that it's very difficult, and this is really truth, I, we're all a finite, and the finite mind cannot come to infinite truth. And, and in any given area, it's very difficult. Unless you know comprehensively, you can never know with certainty. And we're incompetent of comprehensive knowledge. And this becomes particularly when you're dealing with statistics and viruses and science. Um, it's very difficult for people who have busy agendas to be informed about everything. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I'm not sure where the practicality of all this comes in to discern truth. I think an important part about truth is to have to hear both sides yeah, exactly. instead of one side. And so I think that it really discussion should include those who hold a contrary view. Mm. But it takes a lot of openness and honesty because we we all um, play act. We are hypocritical. At least I am. Mm -hmm. I want to please you or something. Mm -hmm. um, and to really be honest and say I was wrong. Yes. And I'm convinced, yes, I am. All arguments are due to pride. Scripture says that. And I mean by argument, I don't mean conversing back and forth, dialoguing. I mean where your emotions get involved. And I think at the root of it is pride. Mm. We don't want to be wrong and say, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think that all went into being a person of truth. Well, it says that uh, most people have enough information to think they're right, but not enough to think that they could be wrong. And I think that is the case in a lot of uh, that yeah. happens here. Um, and I do agree that uh, we cannot, the average person cannot be delving deep into statistics and so forth. But I think where it becomes an issue of things like maybe shutting down the church for a year and something, in, in a situation like that, I think then you do have to become um, very concerned and do the searching for yourself. And find and find out if these things are so, but um, yeah, it is it is well, difficult. I think one of the things that troubled many of us is exactly what Bruce was just saying, that there has been a lack of healthy, robust debate, and there has been censorship of doctors at the top of their field. And one of the things that Fauci and Collins said immediately is that the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration were fringe scientists, which they are not. And they're from Oxford and um, Stanford and Harvard, and they're top epidemiologists and scientists in their field. So some of that really is still going on and has been of great concern because there hasn't been a mutual table for good, healthy, robust, loving dialogue. And that's one of the things I think is going on more often in society, that we don't have a public square that's open to a plurality of voices who come as logocentric people <laughs> believing in um, that there is a truth out there. And so this, this all you know, mixes together with post-modernity and some other things. But what I'd like to do at this point is to wrap this up. This is actually part one. Obviously, to talk about truth is to touch a nerve center that branches out in all directions. And so we are going to come back with a part two and to extend this discussion. Dr. Walke, it would be a great joy if you would stay on with us and we'll have two more people come on. Doug Allen, thanks for being here today with us, um, and uh, of course, the invite to you, you're close enough, is always an open one. I would just invite uh, all, all of us sitting here on this podcast to give any of your final thoughts from what you've heard, said here today, things that have come up to you, or a final word to our listeners on this topic of truth. I, I just had one thought that came out of what you just said. One thing that surprised me in the church is how 
it's sort of a, a very common thing, at least the church that I attend, you know, if you're a dispensationalist and I'm not, that we would discuss and talk about those things, or, you know, you're reformed and I'm not, we can talk about those things. But when it came to COVID, it was like, you know, no, we cannot talk about these things, I'm leaving. I, I don't know why really? COVID came that way, other than yeah. we were so scared and taught that it was smallpox, and therefore, how dare you? You know, you're going to kill my grandmother, sort of thing. So, but but why did it, why is it taking two years yeah. for us? It to became get politicized really immediately. Because Canadians tend to be more peaceful. Than well, you think so? I think that's just our rep, yeah. but uh, I'm not so sure about that. People but, people ask me, <laughs> what's the difference between Canadians and Americans? And I say. Americans act and don't think, and Canadians think and don't act. <laughs> well, they're, 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 I always thought that the, what they find a Canadian is, how do you get 200 Canadians out of a swimming pool? Yeah. You say, please get out of the swimming pool. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I would my final thought would just be that, yeah, if we could respect one another, even on COVID issues and respect differences of opinion, so that we could actually talk about the issues, I think, you know, we would get a long way, especially in the church. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that we esteem those who disagree with us as persons more highly than ourselves to really value that person and not to demonize the person. And um, as a word of encouragement, our church went right along with COVID. We Zoomed our meetings. Now that the mandate, the governor has lifted the mandate and we don't even have masks anymore, what amazed me is the church is larger now than before COVID. So there's hope, and it's full of young people. And to be encouraged that God is on the side of truth, careless seems the great avenger. Mm. History pages but record one death grapple in the darkness, twixt old systems and the word, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. But that scaffold holds the future, for beyond the dim unknown standeth God, keeping watch above his own. Mm-hmm. That was my final word. I think, man. Yes, um, a final word. Um, we are in a spiritual warfare with um, lies and deception and um, wickedness. And um, it doesn't matter what church you belong to or where, what way. If you're a Christian, you are in this battle. And uh, the good thing is God has given us protections to enable us to fight in this battle. And uh, Paul, in Ephesians 6, lists some of the armaments that God has equipped us with. And the first uh, piece of armament that he lists, and I don't think it's necessarily in an order of importance, but it's interesting that he lists it first, and that is the belt of truth. And uh, we have to gird that belt on. And uh, with that belt on us, we have to fight this battle um, against lies and deception because people need the truth and it is the truth that will set them free and so is it an easy battle no it's not it requires all the spiritual disciplines that uh, bruce talked about you won't 
you won't easily fall into this. You have to put the effort to become a person of truth. You have to be completely and totally honest with God to ask him to show you those areas in which you have preferred uh, lies instead of the truth. And let the Holy Spirit do his work in you to um, root out all the dishonesty and um, verifications that pre-verifications in your life so that you're able to see Christ and Christ alone and uh, fight the good fight. Bruce began talking about Balaam and the other stories, and one of the stories you shared, Bruce, was that we must each take responsibility uh, for our own lives and to do what is right according to our own conscience before the face of God. And I would just want to say to people not to despair because truth sometimes is hard to get at and that we need to prize the relationships that we have. This is true. And at the end of the day, as one of my professors used to say, probably quoting Augustine, I'm not sure, but at the end of the day, it is not we who hold the truth, but it is the truth that holds us. And this is our hope today, and this is our hope for eternity.